Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Emily Butchery. Emily wears many hats, her favorite one being that of the cowboy variety. She is a wife, mother, daughter, sister, and friend. She is also an educator, researcher, collaborator, and rancher. Bringing more than 20 years of experience in education, research, and communication, Emily is currently the Director of Education, Programming, and Museum Experience at Discovery Park of America, a state-of-the-art museum and heritage park in Union City, Tennessee. As a member of the senior leadership team, she sets the strategic vision and manages implementation of Discovery Park's mission-oriented education initiatives and events. Prior to her current role, Emily served as the Assistant Director of the Honors Program and Associate Professor of Animal Science at the University of Tennessee at Martin, where she also earned her bachelor's degree in animal science. She was a tenure-track faculty member at Louisiana Tech University and a research and extension associate with the Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Extension Service. She holds graduate degrees from Texas A&M University and West Texas A&M University. Emily, her husband, and two children live in Martin, Tennessee, where they own and operate Berg Livestock, a regenerative grazing operation. They raise cattle, sheep, and laying hens, marketing, breeding cattle, grass-fed lambs, and pasture-raised eggs in the local community. Emily thrives in a team environment, valuing each individual and the skills he or she brings to the table. She's recently taken a keen interest in leadership development and coaching and can't wait to see what may come of that with respect to her on and off the farm roles. Good morning, Emily, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted. We've talked about for, I think, over a year having this conversation, and we're finally to the morning of it. Yes, I'm so excited. Yes, me too. Well, let's just jump right in, and will you tell us about the first job you ever had? So besides, you know, doing chores at home for parents and grandparents, the first paid job. I was 14 years old, eighth grade, probably broke all kinds of child labor laws, but I went to work at a local restaurant washing dishes in the back. Um, I was paid in cash. Um, Again, it was like I was non-existent, but I wanted some extra spending money and my parents were okay with that. But again, I washed dishes, I bust tables, and then turned into waiting tables, sometimes got thrown into the kitchen to cook. There was zero to the bare minimum amount of training and supervision with that job. But I was able to earn a little bit of cash. Most of that went probably to the uh, buy one, get 99, you know, CDs or whatever that club was. Um, But then beyond that, as I got into high school, I bagged groceries at a local, locally owned grocery store where we still actually had to ask paper or plastic and moved up to cashier. I worked in a video store slash tanning salon and uh, then was the first ever waitress at a local bowling alley that put in a pizza restaurant. And so that was kind of high school careers. In college, I spent most of my time waiting tables. And so I say all of that to just get to, I started out working with and in the public and have really continued that. And I think there's a lot to be said. Uh, Everyone should work in the public and with the public at some point. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, through college, you, I mean, through high school, uh, you had all these different sorts of service jobs and then you went to college and what did you major in in college? 
Well, what I settled on is different than where I started. Um, I, I changed majors five different times, and it was across the board, everything from psychology to wildlife biology to ag education. Um, I think there was one more in there somewhere, but I settled on animal science. Again, I say all that to say, I think lots of us when we enter college, we're not really sure. And sometimes we, um, or young people may get stuck in that. And fortunately for me, I I was okay with that. I don't really know um, and jumped around, but I settled on animal science, primarily interested in beef cattle and did not know what I would, where that path would, would take me or what I would do with it. I just knew I really loved those classes and wanted to, to study that. Did you love them because you loved, you love animals, you love science, the combination of the two? Yeah, it was a combination. I do love animals, but not necessarily in the, you know, I want to be a veterinarian and save them all. I, I've always enjoyed being outside and kind of that just hard work, um, you know, working with your hands uh, out in nature sort of thing. And then the science behind it was fascinating as well. And then did you go right from your undergraduate to a PhD program? No, I went uh, to a master's program first. And so I, I had an internship the last summer that I was in um, college at a, a research foundation in Oklahoma. And um, lots of PhDs, master's level people there that talked to me about what's next for you. Um, so this was the summer I was graduating in December. And they kept saying, what's next? And I, you know, I said, I don't really know. That's not a good spot to be in the summer before you graduate. Um, but I had a lot of encouragement of maybe you should pursue a master's degree. And uh, fortunately, some of my uh, supervisors at that internship took me to tour two different major land grant universities. And on one of those trips, I met somebody It was just really serendipitous, but it was a new faculty member that had started that said, hey, I'm going to need a grad student. And I said, well, that's perfect. I'm graduating and uh, I'm going to need a grad program. So I fell into a master's program in a hallway between sessions at a beef cattle conference. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was beautiful and it was where I was supposed to be. And then you went on to do a PhD? I did. So Going back to that master's program, first semester there, they said, you know, thankfully I had an assistantship, uh, but it was, all right, you're going to study and do your research, but you're also going to help TA some classes. So I taught um, my own section, I think two sections of an intro to animal science lab that semester. No formal teaching experience previously. It was just thrown into it. There was a slide set and a schedule for all of us to follow, but it was, here you go, it's yours um, to take. And I loved it. And so I thought, how can I do this for a living? How do I get to teach people about cows and sheep and pigs and, and the science behind it for a living? So my advisor said, well, you know, if you love it that much, then you should get a PhD so you can teach at a university. And so that's the that's the path I took. Um, I will say the first PhD program I started, I did a year, and it was not the fit for me. I did move schools, so I completed my master's. My advisor said, "Hey, I'm willing to take you on, but I really think you should go elsewhere, spread your wings, 
uh, learn from somebody else. And so I did that. I went to um, the university that my now husband, um, he had finished undergrad and started a master's. And so I went there. I mean, I, again, I stuck it out for a year. It was not a good fit um, all the way around. And so this is a sidetrack onto knowing when are you quitting something or when are you moving on from something? And that was the first, I think, real struggle for me where it felt like quitting, but I knew I wasn't quitting. I knew it just wasn't the right fit. Um, and so I took a year off, worked while my husband finished, and then I found another PhD program um, at a different university to finish it out. Um, and it absolutely was the best fit. Isn't that so interesting? And I love that you brought that up, this this distinction between when you're quitting and when are you giving up? Because we don't want to give up or quitting doesn't sound good. So, you know, so we don't want to give up and we don't want to quit. But there's right, there's this distinction that you're drawing, which I think is really lovely, that quitting sounds like we are giving up before we ought to, right? We're giving in the towel uh, when we should be sticking it out. And maybe there's some some short-sightedness on our part or maybe a lack of development on our part because we're quitting. I think quitting or giving up just like it is, I'm just done or I can't do this or it stops here. And in the case of that PhD program and then also moving some jobs, um, there's a time when it's just time to move on either for um, really positive reasons, you know, a, a new opportunity comes along that's going to be great for your professional development or or whatever, or if it's a toxic situation or it's a harmful situation um, for you as a person, and it's just time to move beyond that. And so that PhD program, it was it was not good for me mentally, professional. Professionally, it was taking a toll on my physical health at that point. And so it wasn't quitting. It was just time to to move past that and then to rethink, is this what I want to do? And in that interim of working, it was, yes, I do want to complete a PhD. It's just going to have to be somewhere else under different circumstances with a different advisor. Again, the advisor I worked under previously did a lot of great research we were just not a good fit for each other. And so then, you know, that person was able to find a, a different grad student that was a good fit. And I found an advisor that was a good fit. So that is so interesting, right? So moving on, it's very important to to really assess what is going on with yourself, whether it's you need a new opportunity for growth or a particular situation is harmful to you. And I think a lot of times in toxic work environments, it's very hard, especially if you are somebody who sees yourself as committed with a strong work ethic, where you care about the, maybe the institution and the other people around you. And moving on can feel like you are giving in, you're, you're quitting, you're not doing your due diligence. But many times that's not the case. Many times that's the right thing to do for yourself and for the organization and also, as you said, sometimes it's just we're not a right fit, but it doesn't mean it's a bad fit for everyone, but it's a bad fit for us. Correct. And yet toxic work environments, it's hard to imagine how they're a good fit for almost anyone. For anybody. Um, 
Yes. And that's, that's hard. Um, I, I left a toxic work environment and I think there's a little bit of guilt of you're leaving people behind, you know, close colleagues, but I'm the older I get, the, the more I am learning and being more at peace with, I can't control everybody. I can only control myself, you know, and in those situations, I, I know I've done all I could to help the situation, but at some point I have to help myself as well. Yeah. One thing that I've been surprised about with toxic work environments. So if I see something, I think, oh, that's clearly toxic. It's usually the case that not everybody sees it that way. And I find that interesting, but it's a good reminder to me, I mean, because that's what I do for a living. I try to help people and realizing that the kind of help I think they need may not be what they need. It may not be what they see. And, you know, getting out of the business of trying to control other people or for me, try to save other people, they don't need me to save them. And that's a part of treating people as adults and seeing what, what is good for me and my family doesn't mean that I don't care about other people. But if you don't care for yourself, then you can't care for your family and you can't care for your community. So one thing I wanted to ask you. When you, the first time you were teaching, when you're in your master's program, had you never considered teaching before? No, because, um, so my mother was a public school special education, special education teacher, 29 years, retired, um, was fantastic. And that takes a special person to do special ed. Um, and I watched her and admire her so much for that work. But like lots of kids, I think we don't want to do what our parents did, right? And so I kind of grew up with this, oh, I would never be a teacher um, attitude. And then what have I turned into, um, you know, a lifelong educator? And thankfully she doesn't hold it over my head. Uh, so no, it was not on my radar just because I didn't want to do what mom did, but I loved it. And I think it's because I watched her teach not only in the school system, but church and in our community. And I've really enjoyed it. I love talking. I love sharing stories. I love sharing the science of things, I'm getting to know people. And I love to learn as well. So, you know, that's the beauty of having different sorts of experiences is we don't really know what it's, what that thing is going to be until we experience it. You know, what is that thing that really is going to resonate with us? So we might think we're showing up to a particular job or an educational opportunity, to get one thing out of it, and we might get something totally different. It's amazing what happens when we're we're open to circumstances and and know ourselves. What am I good at, and why is this resonating with me? And even maybe I discounted it for some for some particular reason. Why should I take a look at it again so that I can have the best kind of work life? Right. So, you know, I kind of fell into the teaching and had that's what I was focused on you know I'm gonna get a PhD so I can be a university professor and teach animal science and zeroed in on that and in my PhD program well both masters and PhDs you know we have to do or we get to do research and my PhD co-advisor I remember telling him oh I don't I don't really like the research I'm going to teach, you know, I want to be at a smaller institution where I can just teach. And he said, well, you need to always do research. But he said, I think you, 
you'll probably enjoy it more than you think. No, no, no. I, you know, I'm going to be a, a teacher only. And I fell in love with the research because I started doing it and I, I'm very detail oriented and methodical. So that part of the research was, was beautiful. So by the end of that program, I was leaning more towards that. And of course he would remind me of it and say, I told you. Um, so yeah, just being open to new things and, and getting in there and doing it and then making a decision. So now there's days I miss doing the the really hardcore research studies. That resonates with a lot of us. We think not that I'm not doing that. And then we do it and we're like, oh, I, I really like that. And when you're a parent, you get that experience all the time with your children. You know, a child says, I don't want to try this. I don't like that. And you say, well, have you tried it? And they say, no. And you say, well, how do you know you don't like it? You know, that, that cycle and the delight of having a child try something that they didn't want to do and then they love it. And it's like, great, you know, and us as adults, I think we have that same experience of that's not something that's going to be for me. An example for myself is I never thought I would podcast or do anything like that because I don't like, or I didn't like the sound of my voice. Now I listen to myself all the time. I'm fine with my voice. But that was something, a tape that I had told myself over and over, your voice is not fit for, you know, audio, your voice is not good enough for, and then I have to wonder to myself, where did that come from? You know, why was I telling myself that? And what was that holding me back from? And uh, I, I could probably have a whole litany of things I could, you know, the negative voices in my head that are completely unnecessary. Right. And do you think it gets worse? As we age, as adults, are we more resistant to trying new things? You think? I, you know, I'm of two minds of that. I think with age comes wisdom. And I know, at least for myself, I've let myself off the hook in so many ways. I decided that, no, I can do this and I can do that because I don't care who's looking to a great extent. You know, I don't need to keep up with the Joneses. I dress for myself. I do this or that for myself because I, that's what I like instead of, well, somebody else will be looking at it. But I also see the pitfalls of getting older as digging in and becoming insular and then not being able to communicate with other generations. I think that's really problematic. It's certainly problematic at work, especially when it comes to technology. <laughs> this is the technology that I grew up with. Therefore, I like it. I'm not learning a new technology. <laughs> that's don't right. do that, people. That's bad. <laughs> and just FYI, I love the sound of your voice, Mary. Oh. It make me smile, but it's because I've known you for a long time. That's very sweet. Well, what do you think as you get older? Do people do do their their abilities to try try new things expand or do they recede? What do you what do you see? I think well, I think there's probably two types of people that are going to, as you know, as you said, we get older and maybe gain more wisdom and, and more confidence mm -hmm. in who we are. Um, because I'm with you, I'm going to dress how I want to dress. Uh, and sometimes that's a really pretty dress with my cowboy boots, because that's who I am. But I haven't always been that comfortable or confident in my own skin. But then there are others, I think, that, well, I'm, you know, I'm 
too old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks sort of mentality. So I, I don't know. I, I think people are probably going to be one or the other. Just hopefully there's more of us leaning towards the, yeah, I'll learn something new. Absolutely. So being a university educator, you know, right? So lifelong learning is very important. We want people to learn when they're in school. But I almost wonder if there's a content that we need to know, but that that development of when you get out into the workforce, your learning is not done. In a real way, it has just begun. And you need to, I believe, have that mentality of wanting to learn, being open to learn and not resistant because you're going to have to learn new things. It's like me being resistant of doing the laundry. Well, it's got to get done. I can resist it all I want. Makes it harder on myself. The laundry just gets done with me having a scowl on my face. And the same thing, I think, with learning new things at work. We need to be learning new things at work or we will become relics, we'll become irrelevant. And the more we learn, just the better we are at what we do, which is enjoyable to be good at what you do. Right. And I'm no longer in the university field. I switched careers to a totally different field. It was scary and frightening. And one of those um, that I was not going to apply for the job, but I had my husband and then several close friends that texted it to me and said, Hey, we saw this. You would, you should apply. Um, and so the, the little bit of, you know, self-doubt crept in and well, I don't know, but I finally had enough cheerleaders behind me to say, you should go for it. But I've, I'm learning a, an entirely new industry, career field. I'm working for a nonprofit, which is new, but it's been really exciting. And I think in some ways it's been easier because I came in without any preconceived notions. And I could say, I am brand new. I don't have a clue. Um, I'm here to learn. And so all the all of my colleagues, you know, I could just say, I don't know. And I don't know what I don't know please help me. So it's been fun to learn new things. Scary, but fun. What a wonderful attitude. When you come to a new place and you come with the attitude of, please help me. I want to learn. I want to, I want to know how you do it. I want to know what you see. I want to know what you value and what you think a good job looks like. When you come in with that mentality, most people are going to want to come alongside. Even if there were people vying for your position, which happens in a lot of organizations, the new person comes in and there was an internal candidate that didn't get it for some reason, there are ways to bring those people on board. And I think having that open mentality of, hey, I, I want to know what you do. I want to know what your vision is and how I can be the best at this role for this organization. That is a, a wonderful way, I think, to cut tension and to try to bring about that atmosphere that we all desire where everyone can feel a sense of belonging and being cared for and nurturing to have a good work environment. Right. And that's the approach I took. I came into to this position and there were, of course, a new industry, new organization, but also I now was director level um, where I'm managing a team of people and if I look back at the university, yes, I managed classrooms and students and and advised students, 
and now I have employees. And so I did try to think, okay, I have some of these skills in place. I just have to apply them in a different way. But I didn't come in trying to say, well, I'm the new person and I'm now your boss and I'm going to tell you like it is. I spent really the first solid three months and thankfully I came in a in a slower period of work where there weren't just major projects on top of each other but really the first 90 days or so I spent a lot of time just talking to everyone in the organization and different departments and walking around and I had days where it felt like I'm not doing anything at work but I was I was I was learning, I was observing and talking, getting to know, um, trying to include people and then also, um, you know, include myself in in ways, not push myself on others, but um, just pop in and, you know, hey, what do you what do you do? And tell me, tell me why I asked a lot of questions that I told everybody I'm not asking um, because I'm questioning what you're doing. I'm. I'm trying to learn and so understand if I if I'm saying why did you do it this way or why haven't you done it this way it's for me to learn and so that's what I've done with my team and we've had some there's been some turnover in in the team that I inherited some have moved laterally within the organization and I'm tickled for them because they're now you know doing something that maybe they wanted to do even before I came on board but also hiring, I've had the chance to hire some people and we're starting to mesh as a team, but it really is the, it's not me, it's not top down. Um, I am a, let's talk through this and what are your ideas and how can you make it better? Um, and how can we as a team make it better? So you have managed, as you mentioned before, I mean, when you teach and all those, it's been a different kind of management relationship. So how do you deal with issues when they come up at work? Because issues are, conflicts are normal. People make mistakes. So what is your management philosophy or or how do you deal with that? So with my direct reports, um, and again, most of them are a different generation than I am. And and I'm on the bubble of uh, Gen X and millennial. I like to say I'm Gen X, but you know, I'm just kind of right there, but they are the next generation. They're full millennials um, and on the younger end of that. So I'm trying, I, I just try to coach and come at it from a positive standpoint, not a, not a negative or, you know, slapping somebody on the hand and getting onto them. We're all going to make mistakes. And so that's all I ask. Look, if, if any of us make a mistake, Let's be honest about it, but let's also be comfortable enough to call each other out on it or, you know, to correct one another and and move from that. I also tell my team that if they'll, if we can work together and they put in good effort and good attitudes, and I do as well, um, that I'm, I'm not here to hold them into that position that it, when it's time for them to grow or move to the next thing, I'm happy to do that because in our organization, there are some areas for growth and then some areas there it's just limited. There's, there's nothing beyond, beyond that. And so 
take advantage of this and then when it's time to move. So I'm trying to supervise like I want and enjoy and appreciate being supervised. I, I know I get it wrong sometimes, but I do think I always look at people are people first and people are individuals and I'm going to treat people with kindness and respect and we don't always have to agree, but we can agree on those two things. And if we can't, then you're probably not going to be a part of my team. Right. You know, that's what we want. We want human centric workplaces. I can't agree with you more, Emily, that we are people first and workers second. And if we come at it from that, that frame of mind of working together to solve the problem, being open, being, it sounds like what you're talking to me about is, you know, creating psychological safety. That's like the, the golden, the golden ticket right now in business jargon, which I think it's more than jargon. I think it's reality, but when people actually feel like they can disagree or admit a mistake without fear of retaliation, without fear of being shut down or minimized, but when people can actually voice what's going on, then you create an environment where people can thrive because they know that, that they're welcome there instead of do as I say, you know, and as you mentioned, managing the way that you, you want to be managed, the, the golden rule, you know, treat others the way that you want to be treated and your whole growing up in the service industry, it is good to work with the public so that you get lessons of what to do and what not to do. Cause most people that we interact with in the public sector are lovely, kind individuals. And I think most people are like that. And we also see people on bad days. And then we also see people who are not operating, you know, and loving their fellow citizen very well. Right. Well, and we remember that, again, people are people. and They're individuals. Everybody is dealing with something every day of their life. And so, as you said, you know, if we catch somebody on a not so good day, I have to remind myself, I don't know what's going on. And so it's up to me to extend some grace, maybe take a deep breath. Um, don't say what's on my mind. Remember that they could be going through something that I have no idea. And that's affecting the way that they're behaving at that moment. Um, I will say waiting tables in small town restaurants taught me a lot about conflict management resolution. Uh, you know, you get upset customers and really as the waitress, I was kind of the front line. I could either escalate or diffuse the situation. And I learned really quickly how to um, just deescalate. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, this is not prepared to your liking. Let me let me go fix that. Let me bring you another. Let me refill your tea. And I mean, you really can kill people with kindness and catches people off guard, if nothing else. That attitude is really perfect because I believe so much that conflict resolution and conflict management starts with me. It's not about the boss or somebody else that needs to take care of it. It's all about me. And many times the problem is when we think, no, it's up to somebody else. They need to control their temper. I mean, maybe they do, but that's not something that you can do. But what can you do? As you said, you can de-escalate. 
and realizing it's a choice. I think that's what we forget that we have the power. We can choose to deescalate. We can choose to extend grace. We can choose to say to that person who's being irate, that is a hundred percent about them. Yeah. It's not just, no, I don't deserve it. And I can choose to yell back at them. I can choose to throw food at them or I can choose to step out. I can choose to say, Hey, you know, you, you can, we make choices. And so conflict resolution starts first and foremost with us. Absolutely. And I will say I've had moments where I did not behave or react the way I should. Right. And I've had, um, I've had leadership in the past that, you know, their, their mentality was you never admit mistakes. You never show weakness. You never admit wrongdoing. And I don't agree with that. And, and that's not my personality. And so I have, I will say in the last several years, again, we age and mature. So it becomes easier. But when I have those moments where I react out of anger or frustration or hurt, um, being able to go and admit that and and apologize to the team. And, you know, usually people say, well, there's no need to apologize. That there's a time and a place to do that. And I think it, one, it keeps me humble um, when I, you know, if I blow up and then I'm able to go back to, to my team or, you know, whoever it is and just say, I'm, I'm sorry that I reacted that way, you know, please forgive me or it wasn't professional and I'll, I'll do better. And again, I think that it goes a long, a long way. And if someone thinks I'm weak because of that, okay, they're going to think that no matter what, and I can't control it. And so I would rather them think I'm weak, but me to have, you know, corrected my behavior or admitted this was this was not a good response because maybe Emily was having a bad day. <laughs> that's right. And that's, you know, leadership, good leaders are reflective because what is a leader? A human person. All positions of power are temporary. We have one job or one position one day and we may have a different one the next day. And then we all, life is temporary in and of itself. And so right. to to really realize that at the end of the day, we are all human persons. We all make mistakes and it's up to us how to rectify those mistakes. What What is our character and values-based leadership leading out of your character means recognizing, as you said, that we have bad days, we make mistakes and what are we going to do about it? How do you model? If we want, as you said before, if you have a team member who makes a mistake, you want them to admit it so that it can be rectified so that we can do, you know, that something happened out on the property that that can get fixed or if a, a client got upset or hurt, that can be remedied. The more you know, the more you know. And having those high standards, I think for leadership of wanting to be excellent and wanting to really lead and act in accord with your values doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. I'm just finishing a book right now um, about how to be unprofessional at work. And it's like 80 tips about things to do to be unprofessional and really how to avoid those. And I I finished most of the tips and now I've got to think about the last page I'm going to write, which is like a Mia Copa. I can see myself do, I have done a lot of these things and I'm not proud of it. 
but that's the reality. So what do I do now? What When we do these things that are not good, I mean, they are not good. What do we do next? Yeah, we grow and we move from that. Maybe that's a time to quit. We say, okay, I've done this. I'm going to quit doing that. Right. And then move from that. Right. There are many things to quit that are good, right? That we say, sometimes we want to be the quitter. You're like, I'm not doing that bad habit anymore. <laughs> so Emily, you also are a farmer. Is that correct? That is correct. And how long have you been a farmer? Well, we, um, I say we, my family and I started our own operation in 2016. So this is something that so my husband's got a background in cattle production, also did, uh, got his degrees in animal science and taught and uh, worked at research facilities. So we, we are highly educated in this and taught it for a long, long time. But with moving around for graduate school and careers, we weren't able to start our own operation in, until a little bit later. So we've taught it a long time. Uh, but our operation is uh, Berg, B-E-R-G, Livestock in Martin, Tennessee. And the name comes from um, Brad, Emily, Rachel, and Grady. So we took our initials and created Berg Livestock. Oh, that, I never knew where the name came from. That That's so nice. So what do you see as being one of the biggest challenges of being an entrepreneur? Farming, everybody says farming is so hard. Um, what what are the challenges and and how do you push through? Um, so I think I can speak for Brad and, and myself when I say this. We uh, we know the science of raising livestock. We know I mean that's what we spent years in school and in our careers learning. Just because we know how to raise livestock does not mean we know how to own and run a business raising livestock. So that's been our biggest challenge is the business side of things. And we've done a lot of things wrong um, and we've beaten our heads against the wall about certain things, but we did um, decide to invest in ourselves and our business uh, late last year, we we attended a uh, ranching for profit school, and it was a huge financial investment. But it's an organization that um, their goal is for farmers and ranchers to actually make a profit, which sometimes goes against the mindset of, you know, for tax purposes, you should, you know, you should be in the hole. And no, there's just too much time and energy and money invested to to have that mentality. So we did, we looked at it as, yes, it's a, it's an expense. It was over a week away um, out of state away from the kids and the farm and everything. Um, but we've, we're learning and we were put in a network of people that can help us with that. But again, it's another, we are not too old to learn. We've got to admit when we don't know something and then seek out the resources to fix that. So yeah, networking is so important in the business life, in the business world, and it's important just in life in general, right? That who are we but a web of relationships? And when we think we can do it all on our own, that's usually a, a red flag, whether it's with our personal relationships and our families, in our communities, and certainly in our work. And 
that's why I think it's so sad when we have toxic work environments, because when we're in those work environments, we end up um, contracting because we've lost trust. We lose trust in the institution. We lose trust in colleagues and we become isolated, which makes it harder to then solve our problems because we need each other. It doesn't matter what area we, we should help others and they can help us. And that reciprocal nature is good. And it's good for us to develop our character. And that's one thing that I think is so insidious about toxic work environments is how it affects us psychologically and physically. And it feels like it prevents us from moving forward. In fact, usually we slide backwards. Right. And asking for help is hard. Right. It's just I think it's hard for lots and lots of people. On the flip side of that, most of us are more than willing to help others. Right. Um, but asking for that help can be a challenge. And and so I think about a, a a work environment I was in and just going nonstop. I felt like I was doing all I possibly could. And my direct um, supervisor made the comment of I was always telling him no or he just didn't see productivity and it it blew me away and so this was a moment that I, I could have blown up right then I didn't I just took a step back I made a list of things that I had done and accomplished and sent that to him and said you know I would love to can we meet to talk about what you said to me and maybe I misunderstood or that's not what you meant, but this is how I interpreted it. But here's what I think I have accomplished. Can we meet? And so he agreed to meet and we did. And, you know, I said, I, I think our expectations are maybe not matched. Right. Um, I feel like I'm, being super productive and I'm doing all of these things, but it's not necessarily what you, you think I should be doing or I've misunderstood or, you know, whatever. And so I said, will you please help me? And this was a, this was a challenging conversation. And this is a supervisor that it was not a, it was not pleasant. It had gotten to the point of it was really hard to talk to this person. Um, and emotions usually got pretty high, but you know, I just said, look, I, I I want to meet your expectations or understand what they are. So can you help me prioritize some of these major projects? And Mary, this was it's still bringing a reaction to me now because this person, instead of saying, you know, what I expected, um, said, well, you're a grown woman, Emily. I can't follow you around and help you schedule your day with a clock. And he pointed to his wrist. And I just almost crumbled and it got emotional. And, um, and I'm a crier anyway. I am a happy crier, sad, angry, like all the things. And, uh, and so it, it started. And then he goes, well, you always cry in here. And so I finally looked at him and I said, well, maybe it's you and how you speak to me. Because he then went on to say, well, it seems like every woman leaves my office crying. And I said, then 
maybe you're the problem. And that was a bold, it was one of those afterwards, I thought, did I really say that out loud? But that was crushing. But it was also, if I am ever in the position where I manage and supervise a team, I will not talk down or treat someone that way. You know, if someone um, comes asking for help, which is so hard to do, I'm certainly not going to, you know, flip that on them or use it against them. And so I had to step out of that, that meeting and, and sit on it for a few days um, before going back. And I will say that person um, maybe did some self-reflection because the next time we met, his demeanor was was different. He was a little bit softer, didn't kind of bow up across the table and raise his voice and all that. So, you know, maybe me saying, maybe it's you, um, help to that person. But it, again, I think we started on that path by talking about toxic environments and, and asking for help. And um, I'm sorry that happened to you. That sounds very difficult. It was. Uh, but again, I, I look at it as, well, there was an opportunity for me to learn and, and also mm -hmm. to say, Boy, I hope I don't ever act like that. Um, we certainly do learn. We learn a lot by people's negative examples. And when people say they don't remember what you said, but how you made them feel. Absolutely. And I think that's really true. And of course, we can't control other people's feelings. Not everyone's going to like us. Not everyone's going to agree with us. But we can do our best to really try to treat people humanely and listen to them never belittle, never humiliate. If somebody's asking for help, help them. If somebody needs to pri wants help prioritizing and you think it should be clear, clearly it's not clear, right? And I think right. that's one of the number one jobs of a supervisor. I mean, being a supervisor is being in the people business, I think, full stop. If you're not in the people business, you should not be a supervisor. And that means articulating clearly not just the way you want to be spoken to or the way that is clear for you, but the way that's clear for the people that you're supervising. And that means being able to be flexible and agile and communicate to a wide variety of people with backgrounds, interests, um, ways of processing information to see what's going on and how to speak to them and help them, right? Supervisors are supposed to come alongside and help. And the better your people do, the better you do. It's a win-win. Right. Absolutely. So when you think about the world of work, but before I have two last questions. So I usually I was going to about to end with my last question, but I want to hear what was the best work experience you ever had and what was good about that for you? Um, so I've had I've had jobs every job I've ever had has had some good things about it. Right. And so I think on, on the sheet, you said it was, what was your best job? And I, I don't know, all of them have had great things. And I started thinking about what was one of the best experiences. And when I describe it at first, you're going to be like, well, this sounds horrible. How was it? How is that the best experience? So if we go back um, to when I was working on my PhD program, I was uh, working full-time also for this research and extension facility. Um, 
And so we had lots of research trials going on, but there were PhDs, there were PhD students, master's students, undergraduate students, and then staff of this research facility, right? So lots of people, personalities. Um, and we were managing lots of cattle as well. So hundreds of, of cattle. So it was towards the beginning of the summer and it was hot it, and we were in West Texas at this point. So just super dry, super hot. Um, we got in an, a new shipment of cattle to graze out on grass and they came out of the Southeast. And when we, I say we meaning um, the scientist put in an order for cattle, they should have all been what we call straightened out. So fully vaccinated, they had, been weaned from the mom. They knew how to eat and drink out of a water tank and a feed bunk. Um, so this is kind of like uh, they're ready for kindergarten, right? They've got all these uh, basic tools for they're ready to go to the next step in life. And because it was a research study, we needed a set number of cattle. Um, and I think it was around 600 head at that point. Well, the order buyer, um, and if you know anything about livestock or even if you don't, um, it, it kind of depends on who's bringing animals to the sale that week. And so the, our order buyer was not able to fill our order with that type of cattle, the ones that were totally straightened out, healthy, ready to go, which meant we had about half that were and then half that were in rough shape. Okay, so they show up, um, you know, 14 hour truck ride later to our facility they get turned out and it's like the start of the new semester when everybody comes right and germs are shared and so cattle started getting sick sicker than we were used to because we typically did not buy those kind of cattle um they started getting sick and we were experiencing more death loss than normal on top of that our a uh, hay storage facility um, caught fire in the middle of the night and it was um, spontaneous combustion is what happened. So the hay had enough moisture that it sat there, got hot. Anyway, I show up to work at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning. There's the fire department putting out flames. Um, so we show up, we've got cattle on one side that are sicker and dying at a higher rate than we're used to. Now our feed storage, not only did we lose the structure, but we lost all of that hay. Well, the animals still had to be fed. Um, and so it was, it was stressful. Our entire team, we were putting in 16, 17, 18 hour days because we were having to go to neighboring facilities and truck in these feed ingredients while doctoring sick animals. And the death, the sickness and the death loss, I know a lot of times farmers and ranchers are maybe seen as uncaring or, you know, how could you raise an animal to then slaughter to eat it? You know, like, um, but it's our job to take absolute care of them. And when you're doing all you can, and they're still dying uh, because it's hotter than normal temperatures and their feed is out of routine because we're, we're getting different feed. And it affected 
all of us um, physically, mentally, emotionally, but we were, we were a team and we came together and it could have really made us or, or, or broken us. And so I say all of that, I mean, it sounds horrible. And in the moment it was, it was horrible, but it's been one of the best experiences because we came together as a team. We had high emotions and we were there for each other. You know, we were there and um, some of the toughest men I've ever been around seeing them weep because another one died. Um, I don't, it's, it's still, that was years ago, but it was one of the best experiences because we had no other choice than to just get the work done but we treated each other with kindness and respect and, and we came together as a team. That's a beautiful story. You're right. It sounds terrible, but I know <laughs> I see, I, I can just see what you're talking about. What else do we want, but to be valued and for people to depend on us and for us to depend on others. And many of us have had, we call these like these golden experiences, either in our private life and our public life. And they're so precious. And a lot of times they come out of difficult circumstances, not always, but that, that kismet, that environment that is built when you can do hard things together and you're trusted and you trust it's, it's really precious. Thank you for sharing that yeah. story. Oh, you're welcome. So when you think about your children going out into the world of work, what do you think needs to happen so that they and all the other kids growing up are not only treated with dignity and respect, but that they flourish. Oh, that's Mary. That's a hard question. Um, I, it starts at home. Um, and so we try at home to teach our kids the value of working hard. So we are a working family farm. They have chores um, some pleasant, some not so pleasant. And they, they're normal kids, right? They're normal people because there's tasks as adults we don't want to do. And so we can choose to grumble about it or be miserable, or we can just choose to, this has to be done and we're going to get it done with a good attitude. I'm not saying my kids have good attitudes all the time. <laughs> they don't. But I think they see um, within our family that we, there are hard times, there are challenges that we're going to work through them together and we're going to treat each other kindly. And if we don't, we're going to apologize for that. We are teaching our kids and this maybe goes against the grain a little bit with the, um, Oh, do what you love, find your passion and, and pursue that. And there's a time and a place for that. And, and again, for that's a good fit for some personalities or people, but sometimes when you pursue your dream or your passion, and that's your career, um, you lose a little bit of that love for it because you're, it's work now or it's, it's every day. Or maybe it doesn't meet the expectation of what your dream of it was. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so we're teaching our kids and encouraging, they're 10 and 12. So one, explore different things, try new things, read different books, and all of the subjects you're learning in school, um, are relevant. They're all interrelated, right? Um, and so we're encouraging, don't 
don't block anything off or just put it out of the picture. Explore, but don't necessarily pursue the thing that you love to do for enjoyment. That's great if it does, but you know, maybe that's not the career. Does that make sense? So it does. It absolutely um, does. I think especially when you're young, I think, you know, I think, oh, being a rock star would be fabulous. But then, you know, once you're a rock star, that's a pretty hard life. <laughs> correct. I mean, look at the rock stars that right. it's not ended well for them. Right. Um, absolutely. So I don't know if if my children, nothing else, are just kind to everyone that they're around. Um I don't care what they do career-wise or if they go to college, go to trade school, go straight into a career. Um, just be kind. Treat people with respect. And yeah. I'll feel like I haven't totally failed as a parent. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's what we want. We want to produce <laughs> kind people and to help that along. I think we need to think about kind environments. How do we have kind work environments that, I mean, it's kind to have high expectations. It's kind to have clear rules. It's kind to not let people get away with whatever they want. And it's kind to uh, treat people the way that we want to be treated and sometimes even better. Well, Emily, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been so much fun. It has been, Marion. It flew by. I know it did. It did. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Emily, so much for being on Conflict Managed. I so enjoyed our conversation. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. You listen to this podcast. If you could give us a like or a follow or both, it just helps that algorithm to get the word out. And if there's someone you would like to see as a guest, or if you'd like to be a guest, please reach out and contact me. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.